everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris, and today I just wanted to do a notes show where I go over some things I've been thinking about over the past few weeks and uh, make some observations and, and rant about them. Um, I do have the next edition of the Timeline series in the works. I've made some progress on that this week. Again, it's more work than I was thinking it would be. It really could be its own thing. Um, also, I've been working on a project about the gospel and some evangelism stuff that hopefully I'll be able to announce uh, next week after I get all the permissions in order, etc. Uh, but for now, let's just jump into the notes. All right, I do have a lot to cover today. I've got economy, immigration, war, communism, Joseph uh, from the Bible being a really interesting guy in history, uh, Russia, Canadian truckers, vaccine aids, and more. So let's just jump in with some of the mundane or... I guess nothing's really mundane these days, but uh, the economy. Specifically, I wanted to talk about the housing market and as it relates to the economy, because in many ways it is the economy. For many years, Americans have been sort of told that their house is their, their the way to, to save wealth. And it's kind of similar to what happened in China, which was literally their only option because they couldn't invest in the stock market easily. And it led to this weird, crazy situation with Evergrande in China. But the thing I've been thinking about over the last two years is where is the housing market going to go? Because it seemed to me that most of what's happening in the housing market right now, which is a lack of supply, there's not enough houses on the market, are driving up prices. And that uh, scarcity is an artificial scarcity created by an artificial construct, i.e. COVID and government policy. So it was something that the government could have predicted ahead of time. There's going to be a scarcity because we are going to make them scarce. In addition to the fact that they, through these massive hedge funds like BlackRock and Vanguard or whatever, have been buying houses at above their bidding price uh, to you know make rental houses for the future as they're essentially making a bid to control all houses um and they don't care there's so much money it's almost unbelievable how much money these these hedge funds have i think i've heard 10 trillion in assets or something and so it doesn't matter to them if they're buying a house for 500,000 instead of 300,000 because it's it, it's nothing it's really about power at this point it's about this global control it has nothing to do it it has nothing to do with that extra $200,000 so that's also driving up prices the lack of scarcity because of that so the question is What's going to happen with the housing market? Is that trend going to continue? Is it in a bubble? I think there's no question that the housing market is in a bubble. Um, you can look at adjusted for inflation prices from literally 100 years ago. We have good data on, on how much houses cost relative to like a person's wages adjusted for inflation. And it almost always is it's a straight flat line. There's just a level that houses just always are. Uh, in relationship to income. And it jumps up in 2008, this massive spike, and comes back down. And then now it's well, well, super, super higher than 2008 in terms of the mean of houses prices relative to income. So by that metric, we are certainly in a bubble. But the question is, is that going to change? I mean, we're now in coronavirus, uh, new world order world, where is supply going to remain small? Is there going to be a continued flight of people from the cities to, to, the, to the country, which was, you know, there's just no possibility of having that kind of supply. And so it's been something to, to think about, and it, it, it's, it's affecting people's lives in some sense because they think, well, should I sell my house now and get this, uh, you know, equity or whatever, this, this high price tag out of my house? 
But then the question is, well, where am I going to buy a house? And if you're willing to move to a, a rural area where houses are cheaper, then that could be a win. But if you're moving in the same area, the same city, then it's a really dangerous move if the housing market crashes because it would kind of roll into what I talked about last time, which is this great COVID train robbery by uh, because it, it has the potential to essentially steal everybody's wealth. And what I mean is that if you right now go out and, and sell your house and let's say you sell it for $300,000 and now you go buy a house for $300,000 uh, and you don't put all that money down or, or whatever. Now you've got a big loan with a, a higher monthly payment. If housing prices go down and you're underwater all of a sudden on a well overvalued house and anything happens to the job market, then you're basically going to get foreclosed on. They're going to just steal that house and you're going to be homeless. That's how that works. So it's a lot safer to have the lower payment in that kind of situation. The change in my thinking came when I was listening to a podcast called the Bigger Podcast, Bigger Pockets podcast. It was a uh, podcast about uh, real estate. And they somebody was on there that mentioned that the numbers of population growth in the last 10 years in America, and this is a worldwide trend, have been plummeting, just a massive downward spike. The population growth, I mean, the population of America grows a little bit per year. People get, you know, birthed and, and immigration and all this stuff kind of keeps going up. But our population numbers are just going down, down, down uh, steadily, kind of like China and its one child policy kind of problem, except accelerated. And that trend is, is something you can also track over time. And another data point is the amount of houses currently in the pipeline that are being built. So these are houses that, you know, shovels of broken ground, they are in the, in the pipeline. There probably is some supply chain issues or whatever going on there that's kind of holding that back, thankfully, a little bit. But when you put those numbers together, the story is, I mean, this is a huge amount of houses being built, like more than it's ever been built before and by a long shot. And when you put the numbers together, there is just not going to be enough people to fill these houses, the exact same thing that China is experiencing uh, as well, that we're going to be left with a way more houses than we have people in not that long of a time. And so that necessarily will drive the prices down probably sooner than later, because there are a couple other factors that are not in that podcast, for example, were not being considered. Number one is that, yes, we are in a downward trend of population growth, but that could accelerate uh, greatly if anything to do with the vaccine stuff turns out to be true, which we'll talk a little bit about later. Then that's going to be a massive, a much bigger drop than just the traditional population slowing curve that we've been on for the last 10 years. It's going to be accelerated. In addition, there are other factors that are not being considered. For example, uh, the eviction moratorium. We don't really know exactly how many people would not have a house right now if the, again, government, artificial scarcity of the government were let go and these people could evict their tenants. And then all of a sudden we have an additional huge amount of houses on the market. So it's a really volatile time to be getting into a major uh, a loan right now. Because if you're, getting, if you're getting a loan with a payment higher than your current payment, that's the danger. If you can move it all around and where you have more equity and less payment, then by all means, you know, make those shrewd moves. But um, if, you're, if you're banking on everything being hunky-dory in the real estate market for a, a long time, I, I don't think it's a, a wise thing. 
Next thing on my notes is immigration. So immigration is one of these things that, you know, is a part of our two minutes of hate on uh, Fox uh, News or whatever, where, you know, we, we hate all the stuff that's going on at the border. And I get it as far as like, there's no justice there. There's complete contradiction in policy. And, you know, it just makes no sense. And there's lots of things to be mad at about the immigration policy. But remember, it's the same immigration policy that they're, that the, the Soros kind of group was doing in Europe. And for the same reasons, they got the, in those in that case, the Muslim and Islamic immigrants to come into Europe uh, to cause the divisions and to, uh, to make a lot of not, I don't know, disunity, I guess, uh, in the preparation for the new world order. And in our case, they're using geographically the uh, South American populations. And it's different. And I would just want, I just want people to recognize that it is different. In the main, those people in South America, uh, yes, there's the, uh, the, the gangsters and the whatever the gang is with the tattoos, or whatever, there's that stuff going on. It's certainly bad news. But in the main, these are people that are us in the future. They are, they're coming from places that have been economically destroyed, uh, that have that had to fend for themselves. These are, these are salt of the earth people that are very resourceful. And I think if we can look at it a little bit like that, um, we can see them as an asset in some ways. I mean, it could backfire the new world order because these are anti-communist people in some cases, you know, they came from communist countries. They're fleeing from the results of those kinds of things. They're also people that have typically a Catholic background. And while, of course, I don't agree with Catholicism, it does sort of inoculate them from a lot of the what the New World Order is trying to do. So they're against a lot of the crazy woke stuff that's going on. And so it really is almost like an influx of, uh, uh, of people that make it harder for the New World Order to do what it's trying to do in the hearts and minds. I think as long as we don't let that two minutes of hate thing overwhelm us against the people themselves, because it's happening, you know, that is happening. The future is different shades of brown, period, full stop. And I think that we just should embrace that in terms of the people. Don't let, you know, you can be uh, mad at the policies of immigration and all that stuff that's nonsense that's going on at the border. But in terms of the people themselves, I think that let's just uh, deal with it. It could, it, we're going into something that we might need their resourcefulness. They're going to be the only people that know how to skin a goat and eat it. You know, we're going to be <laughs> we're going to be asking them for a lot of help in the future. And to dovetail with the previous point, our population growth is so so drastically declining that we need every single one of those immigrants in order to give us a chance at not collapsing because of it. So you know, even the numbers that they're saying that they're coming over the border are still not enough to make a dent in that population decline. And that's not even uh, pricing in what might happen with the vaccine stuff. Okay, so this next one is a little bit in left field and I'm definitely going to be shooting from the hip here. I only have like bits and pieces of enough information to talk about this. So uh, forgive me if I get some of these details wrong. But so Joseph in the Bible, I've been rereading through Genesis with this great app called Dwell, where I can listen to it and see it on the screen at the same time. So it makes Bible plans really easy. No affiliation, but it's really cool. Dwell. Anyway, it got me thinking about something I'd seen a long time ago with Ron Wyatt, who is one of these biblical archaeologist guys. He's a Seventh-day Adventist and a little bit wonky on some things, but um, he's dead now. But anyway, on Joseph, he had this thing where he showed the grain silos that were, were made. And it's ridiculous. They're still there. They're huge 
underground grain silos, the whole complex is there, how people would get the grain and where they brought their sacks and where they would go to leave and how they would line up. It's like, wow, oh my gosh, that's the thing in the Bible, right? That's the, you know, the seven years of famine. He told everybody to uh, give one fifth of their produce to the, you know, you know how, you know the story. And so you think, wow, something that huge would probably be in history. And so there it was, but I got to looking into it. And so the Pharaoh that uh, built that is called uh, Dozier, D-J-O-S-E-R. And Dozier had a number one right-hand man, the highest, second highest in all Egypt, one of the most famous people in all Egyptian history, whose name was Imhotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. Remember when telling the story that this is extremely early in human history. Remember, this is before Israel is even a nation. This is just a family in Egypt. Joseph, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... So we're really, really early in history. We're just out of the cradle of civilization here. So even this, like Dozier, or rather Imhotep, Joseph, was deified in Egyptian lore 3,000 years after he existed. So, you know, it was completely corrupted after that. But that's still ancient history to us. 3,000 years after Imhotep in Egypt is still ancient history to us. So it's very, very early. So keep that in mind. But there is, you know, stelas, these huge rock uh, uh, you know, inscriptions that tell the basic story. Yeah, during Dozier's uh, uh, reign, there was a seven-year famine, but Mhotep was instrumental in making it all happen. And now they later on, again, thousands of years later, made Mhotep like a god who could do anything. And he's one of the few people in Egypt that were sort of deified. But if you can, you can basically parse out what he actually did to some extent in terms, because there's very little in terms of like what he actually did. Most of it is sort of that, uh, romanticized much after the fact stuff with Mhotep. But one thing that is interesting, so remember he built this huge grain silos. As I mentioned, these things are still there. It's amazing. It's a monumental feat of things. And he also is credited with building the first pyramid. Mhotep was the guy who built the step pyramid uh, of Dozier, which is the first pyramid. Okay, it's very early on. We're, again, we're talking early Egypt, before pyramids, before Sphinx, before anything. And I'm assuming that in the process of building the grain silos, because remember in the story in the Bible, the Pharaoh's just like, all right, so this is going to happen. Why don't we put you in charge of that? Basically, whatever you say goes. So just go ahead and fix that, right? And so he does. He goes and builds these grain silos, probably had, since he was the guy in charge, says, go do this, put this blocks here, do it this way or whatever, built this monumental thing. This is where the pyramid thing comes in. And there's a lot of stuff going on here because it talks about in the Bible too, about how everybody over time, the wealth of the entire Middle East kind of flows into Egypt, right? Because seven years of famine, people, they say, hey, look, we don't get any money. Or, or at first they do have money. They give them money for grain during the famine and Joseph takes the money and they basically accumulate all the gold of all the world into Egypt. And the Bible does get into that point. It's like, yeah, now they come back. Now they ain't got money, but now they got uh, their, their livestock. So they give their livestock to, to Joseph. And now basically everybody has given all their money at the end of the seven years to Egypt. So Egypt is this huge, wealthy nation. And it's interesting. I've seen this in other places when researching uh, uh, Egypt in letters for, from other countries to Egypt that are just like asking them for gold in that time. Like, hey, why don't you give us some gold? Like to you, gold is nothing. It grows on trees, basically. Why don't you just give us some gold? Because it was just known that Egypt was just this 
hugely influential, powerful, rich country after that. And so what I'm saying is that, and also in the Bible, it talks about how when they came back and they didn't have livestock, what did they do? They sold themselves as slaves to Egypt. So at the end of that seven-year period, uh, Egypt not only had more wealth than it knew what to do with, it had more slaves than it knew what to do with. And I think that Joseph put them all to work and they built the pyramids and he constructed those pyramids. He's now considered, you know, as I say, like a God for figuring that out or whatever. But I'm just saying that Joseph... From the Bible, little old Joseph was like the reason for the pyramids in Egypt. And he he didn't build the great pyramids, but he certainly uh, kicked off the whole thing. And it was his uh, uh, wealth accumulation that made Egypt really what it would be for the next uh, few thousand years. It's a really interesting story. I know that there's probably a lot more to it, but I just wanted to mention that. All right, let's talk about Canadian truckers. And I am very pro-Canadian truckers because I see it as a very difficult chess move for the New World Order. And it just got some attributes about it that you know that they would have planned for protest. I mean, that was a given. But this particular kind of thing is throwing a wrench in the gears. It has the potential to get out of control, so they cannot let it get out of control. Um, but I'm not sure that it could ever be a game changer for us, barring any divine intervention. So let me talk about what I mean. So one of the biggest, most important things that the Canadian truckers are doing is being radically peaceful. Like that is a part of their ethos, is that they're just, let's do everything so peaceful that no one could possibly say anything else and that is really ruining their narrative, right? Like these are all, uh, you know, uh, Hitler's out there with their signs or whatever. And everybody's looking at that and saying, I don't think so. So even the people that used to trust the media are, are quickly becoming like in a rapid level, uh, 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 you know, uh, disillusioned with that, especially because they probably do want the vaccine mandates to end as well. So they're so. The elites are forced to say this is all bad, but here's the the wrinkle that I wanted to talk about. I, as I mentioned before, I think Omicron was created in a lab. Um, I think that it, there's just no way to explain all those mutations. I kind of look at it as a kill switch, uh, possibly. And this gets a little conspiratorial, but I think you could look at this without believing that. Uh, as long as you believed that they knew that there would be a lull in coronavirus in the winter to some extent, whether because of trends and forces or because of Omicron or they knew about Omicron or whatever. Uh, or they may have anticipated that that such a uh, variant would uh, mutate logically anyway, as the normally coronaviruses do. They get more contagious and less, less lethal, so they could have planned for this anyway. But my point is, I think what the plan was, was to actually... Uh, roll back some of the mandates because they would declare victory. The vaccines work. We did so good with all the lockdowns or whatever. We're going to let you guys have some freedoms back. They were supposed to be the heroes of that story. That's the way it was supposed to go. And crucially, they would not really get rid of any of the main infrastructure, such as the vaccine passport stuff. One of the things that just hit me like a ton of bricks when I was uh, seeing some of the hardware that was involved in this, uh, you know, scanning vaccine passports in Canada and, and stuff and really around the world. And I was thinking the companies that built that hardware, these massive rigs that, you know, people walk through and it scans their vaccine passports, that stuff has been in the development for so long. There, That's like what this is all about. All that infrastructure 
to track and trace us via the apps or whatever. That's what the whole thing is about. That's, you know, that's not a, a new thing. A lot of people have recognized that that is, but just seeing that hardware in place just made me think, oh, they're never, ever, 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 ever going to end this coronavirus thing. It may change names. We may not do a coronavirus next time or whatever, but the idea of medical passports in order to live life in society is here to stay. That's the point. So, in, if that's the case, then, you know, the psychological tactic of letting people, you know, oh, you can have some freedoms back. We're your benevolent leaders or whatever. And then a little later on, when a scarier thing comes around, oh, no, we got to go back to the thing. And everybody knows how to do it because we've already done that dance before. So we go, we do the lockdowns or whatever we tell, tell them to do. We get the new vaccines and we, we uh, uh, already have the passport, right? So that's the way I think it was supposed to go. Omicron was a part of that, whether they designed it to be or just were taking advantage of it. But the truckers throw a massive monkey wrench into that, that gears because they because right now the perception is that the if Canada releases any kind of mandate now, it's because of the truckers. And it's not just that the truckers would get the credit for the rollback of the mandates if they did it now. It's that the truckers have a very clear, hardline stance that all mandates, including and maybe even most importantly, the vaccine passport, will go completely away. And they're not moving until that happens. And so no negotiation strategy on their part will be accepted unless no vaccine mandates. And, and you could say, well, okay, maybe they'll give it to them just to defuse the situation. Uh, but then they'll just, you know, pass some laws a little later on. But what I think will happen, and this is now becoming a worldwide thing, and if the worldwide thing has those two elements, number one, radically peaceful and therefore narrative destroying uh, and shows everybody that they're not alone and all the other things that those kinds of protests do, but they also have the n absolutely hardline, no vaccine mandate policy, what will eventually happen is that they could you know, follow all that up with this, this, this goodwill of like, and by the way, let's make laws to make sure that we never do any of this again and put those laws back on the books, thereby sort of reversing in some cases, parts of like, uh, the Patriot Act or, or whatever, you know, reinforcing some of the liberties that that's the sort of death blow to the new world order that the trucker has the potential thing to do worldwide. Um, now that's the optimistic look, but I'm, I'm actually quite pessimistic about uh, that to some extent. And the reason is because, number one, it is too important to, well, again, it kind of comes back to, like, what level of societal collapse are they wanting? I am more convinced now than I have been before that they do intend this fourth turning to all the institutions are, are going. It's a fire sale on institutions, governments, all that stuff has to go in order to bring in a new system. So we can hate Pfizer, we can hate the governments. It's all okay to hate when all this stuff crashes. Uh, so, but that's uh, one aspect of it. But my point was that I'm pessimistic that they will let the truckers win. And it's almost too important for them not to. I mean, I think that their chess move has to be something drastic. They cannot let this win. It's that important of a thing to this concept. So they will do anything. I think that anything is on the table with the truckers. And it's kind of like Tiananmen Square in a way. And I think this has overarching implications. This is really what I wanted to talk about is that our 
we are not really prepared for the level of tyranny that is actually at our doorstep. So what I mean is that Tiananmen Square, I mean, they had this huge thing. If you've ever seen pictures of like the people in China that were like, hey, let's all go protest communism. We do not want communism, you know? Oh, happy-go-lucky flowers and everything. No communism, please. They roll in tanks and they kill however many people that there was. And a lot of the people, and they never did it again. And that was like, oh, we didn't realize you would be killing us. We thought this was a party. And uh, we'll go home now, you know? And they never, And that was a really critical error because they got scared because now they realized that the stakes were death. And... Uh, Communism took over without opposition for the next whatever it was, 40 years or 50 years or whatever it's been. And I think that's a similar situation now. We see these protests all around the world. It's all happy and signs and smiles and no masks or whatever. But we don't realize that the stakes are that they will kill us rather than let us win. And when those happy smiles get shot and or and or in the case of January 6th, get, uh, you know, that was a critical thing in saying like, hey, we will arrest anybody if you're even on a plane going to protest. If they can scare us that bad to even be at a protest, then they really do win because we're not, basically we're too soft right now. So I was thinking about Soviet Union, the Soviet Union and somebody, I think I was listening to Arthur uh, Poznansky's speech at the border of the trucker, Canadian truckers. And he was talking about how, you know, freedom costs blood, you know, I mean, that, you know, it's the Thomas Jefferson quote from time to time, uh, liberty require, you know, the tree of liberty requires the blood of saints and tyrants. Um, and I think that, you know, in, in Russia, you know, in the eighties, he was talking about people dying for it, but that was after however many years, 80 years or something crazy like that of communism and people being put in gulags and millions and millions and millions of people dying uh, by a totalitarian system. People had nothing left to lose at that point. It was just the worst possible things that were happening in Russia at that time. So to stand up in the face of being killed, it wasn't that much to lose, you know, at that point. But we're just not even close to there yet. We're coming from a very, very peak of civilization where nothing ever goes wrong. We have insurance for anything that could possibly go wrong. As soon as somebody shoots a couple of us, we'll be like, oh, I'm sorry, we misunderstood. We didn't know that there would be shooting of us. We'll go home now. You know, that's that's the phase that we're at right now. Uh, so therefore, I am pessimistic that any of this has the, the will to stand in place uh, once they make their counter move. And I don't know what that counter move is, but it must of necessity be something uh, because this just can't be allowed to happen. I would love for it to be a possibility, but I just don't think it is. And uh, I'm all about it if it does though. All right, a couple things to talk about with war. Um, the Russia situation, it seems that America is provoking Russia to war. That could be a thing that will prove to be all we ever talk about in the future if it happens and will be the only thing that we ever think about, which may in fact be the reason for doing it. I think there's actually another reason I'll talk about later. Or it could fade away and be nothing. So it's hard to know what will happen with that. But I did want to make a point about the reason why totalitarians have to have a war is because it makes killing the other um, very, very easy to do. Right now, I mean, we are on a razor's edge of people, you know, hurting everybody in the streets that are a part of the other, not the 
the class that they're at. We, we are two minutes of hate has become so ingrained in us that we will hurt and love to hurt the other in our own society because they have are masters of that kind of divide and conquer situation. But killing them in mass is not something that we will do uh, very easily. But it is something that Satan wants to do because he, he, that's just his thing. He loves to kill and steal and destroy. And so he is looking for mass death. And wars against a, a, a third party are the way to do that. So in, in, in uh, Nazi Germany, the Jews, you know, we think about, man, how did everybody hate Jews and be okay with that? I mean, I know to some extent they didn't know the extent of what was happening, but I think they kind of knew basically what was happening. And the propaganda, i.e. the news, the news is just a... Uh, uh, propaganda is just news that's lying to you. It's the same thing. But in their in their time, of course, the Nazis had control of the newspapers and everything, and and uh, they were telling them that not only were the Jews sort of you know anti-German, that they were working with uh, the the Soviets or whoever it was, their enemies, uh, in order to bring down Germany. Especially after the war had started, the the line was that the Jews were working with their enemies, and that was good enough reason during wartime, right? You know, we've got traitors working against us. They must be killed. Oh, wow. And then it becomes a moral imperative to kill your other. So that's what war does. And it, in light of the fact that, you know, they've been trying to, to uh, hook up conservatives to Russia for a long time now, right? So if we actually go to war with Russia, I mean, you can just hear CNN talk about anti-vaxxers in Russia. I mean, these are working with the enemies, you know, that's, that's where that's going if it's Russia. I think Russia has some other uh, utility for the New World Order as well, uh, which I'll talk about later. I have in my notes here the concept of optimism, and this kind of ties into the truckers thing. I think that I can see the optimistic take on the truckers thing, the cascade of events worldwide that could lead to the ouster of the puppets and different things, and maybe even... Uh, depending on how much you know, people know about like Klaus Schwab and the New World Order and that kind of thing, they may even become an anti-New World Order movement. I mean, that's the best case scenario. But even in that scenario, if, the, if let's say a certain percentage of the world, 30% of the population of the world becomes aware of and against the New World Order and is in the process of, or in the habit of, of, of pro protesting major cities and these kinds of things, it's still not enough to do anything because of the level of power that is has been accumulated by these New World Order types. And I think that optimism plays a role here because I think it's a worldview thing because I can see the optimistic take that secular people have that are aware of this kind of stuff that are, you know, sort of people that know about the New World Order but are secular. They tend to be a little bit more optimistic. You know, I think that Bitcoin is a good example of, uh, of that. You know, they see the problem with the central banks and how not sustainable it is. And they see the big, big coins, Bitcoin solves that. And they see a future which is more like Star Trek, right? You know, and it makes sense that the, that the future would be like Star Trek. But there are some, but the worldview thing makes that kind of hard for me to buy. Part of that, too, I think, is that those secular people that know about the New World Order, they see the New World Order as the incompetent weaklings that they actually are. They're, they're right about that, that, you know, Klaus Schwab is this ridiculous 
Klingon suit wearing guy who probably isn't that smart and whatever. And they are the sons of the sons of the sons of people that were extremely wealthy and their little cabal is outdated and whatever. That's the way they kind of see it. And they see that all we got to do is wake people up to it and we can throw them out. But even then, they would have to admit that, man, these people have more money and power and they own everything. They have control over all the bombs and every single facet of the globe is now in the hands of these people and we can't wrestle that out of their hands. We can't just take back uh, the oil industry or whatever. You know what I mean? I mean, there's, it would, it's a, even in a secular thing, it's almost an impossible situation when you understand the level of wealth that they have and therefore power versus what we have. I mean, you can get rid of Justin Trudeau and that's not going to change the, uh, the the power balance of the world uh, in this current scenario without divine intervention, which I think is certainly going to happen in the long term and may even happen in the short term because God uh, does not care for tyrants, generally speaking. So that could happen. Uh, but my thing about the worldview is this. I understand that these people are um, at bottom, you know, Satan worshipers. They literally go to their, their, their uni unity is not that they go to secret Bilderberg meetings or whatever, but the real unity is Satanism and actual worship of an ancient cherub in exchange for money and power. I don't know exactly who all know is, you know, how big that circle is, but the key factor in that is that they're not coming up with the ideas. The ideas are being given to them by uh, spiritual entities. We see this, you know, in in lots of different ways. Uh, the New Age, certainly automatic writing and stuff like that. But there's lots of uh, anecdotal stuff about satanic uh, rituals. And that's essentially the point of the satanic rituals. You go there, you get your marching orders and you go do them. And if that's the case, and a, granted, it's a worldview that not a lot of people are going to join me in. Uh, but if that's the case, then we're dealing with uh, a much, much smarter plan than these uh, incompetent idiots are coming up with. They're just scared little children that have been traumatized their whole life in order to do exactly what they're told. And they're especially scared of the uh, entities and the actual power structure that they answer to. So they are live their lives in fear, basically, in exchange. Their reward is you know the money and power that we see that they have or think that they have. So the plan is much smarter than we're thinking. And if you think about what is that plan, what from a spiritual satanic empire perspective, what is that plan? That's where I think we get into the next part of my notes. So my current understanding of the plan is to get us into the new world order, which I don't think that barring divine intervention can be stopped. There's too much power uh, that unlimited money accumulated. I think if you had unlimited money or knew that you would have unlimited money through controlling of certain central banks and different things, you could always calculate how long it would be until you controlled literally the world because every institution has a price tag. You can control every university in the world. It's just got a price tag on it in order to get your person in the in the position to hire the people or whatever. It was always just a matter of what's the number? What, what do you need on this check for me to completely run this university. And that, and so it was just a matter of time before you could calculate that you would run the whole world and direct everything about it. That's why this system is too impossible to stop minus divine intervention. Uh, but that's where we're going. We're going there. And my understanding, I think, is that it's supposed to be hated. And that is the directive coming on from, from the spiritual side, is that it's, 
it's not only okay to be decadent and, and all the things that, you know, typically tyrants are, but it's okay to be actually overtly hated and to be understood as wrong because we won't have the power to do anything about it. And part of that is that the new tools that tyranny now has, the sort of technocracy stuff that's going on, the crowd control stuff that's going on, the, 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 the credit scores and the, the, the vaccine passports and all this stuff is going to make it very, very hard to do anything about this. And once they kind of go through, I think eventually they'll take the guns in America, probably after a, a civil war or whatever, when they say, oh, look what the look at what this uh, has done is wrought. We must take the guns or whatever. And everybody will agree with it at that point. So anyway, they'll, they'll do that. They'll get us into that system, but we're supposed to hate it. And the reason why we're supposed to hate it from a spiritual, demonic, satanic perspective is because this whole thing is about the Antichrist. It's all about the Antichrist. This system can exist for millennia. Remember, Satan has no idea when the end times are going to start. He cannot start the end times. But what he can do is start this thing, which must exist before the end times. This is a plan, think about it, to control the whole world. It's been a plan that he's had in the works probably since day one. And it's just now coming to fruition. And so I do believe that they're going to create this. And it's important for us to hate it because the Antichrist will save us from it. The Antichrist comes in on a white horse conquering into conquer. Who does he conquer? The Ten Kings. He conquers three of the Ten Kings. He liberates them. He certainly liberates Israel. Remember, I think this, this thing that's going to take over is going to be very anti-Israel. Uh, does anybody doubt that? I mean, uh, so we're, this, this, the point is that we're going into a world that it's basically going to be impossible for even intelligent Christians to not think is the end times. It's, it, it, I, I don't even see a possibility anymore of, of, of any Christian not thinking that we're in the end times. And that is the most dangerous thing I could ever think of. Hey, look, if, if it is the end times, I'm ready to, to turn on a dime as soon as I see those things that Jesus was talking about and that said, you know, what are the signs we're supposed to wait for? If I see any of those things, then I'm going to be on board with it. But until then, I see this system, everything about it, something that could be easily set in motion, something that could easily be done by Satan in order to benefit him when the time comes. That system can exist for five years, 10 years, 500 years, and it still serves the same purpose, which is to put the world into a dark, evil age where every single citizen that's alive knows it's oppressive, knows it's evil, but can do nothing to stop it because it's too powerful. The entire world is involved. All the money of the world and all the assets are involved. There's no way to break free of that system. And in fact, it's the hopelessness of being able to do anything about that system because of this, this tight grip of this technocracy that will be built up around us, this hopelessness. How could we ever possibly get out of this that makes that rider on the white horse seem so awesome? Who is like the beast? Who can make war with him? What does he do? He makes a, people call it a peace agreement with Israel, but what he's actually doing is he's liberating Israel, making it the master of its domain, letting it make sacrifices again. Again, remember this, this, this group that's going to take over is going to control Israel and probably not in a good way. Do you know any leftist woke thing that is pro-Israel? No, this is going to be anti-Israel. So the Antichrist is going to come on the scene as a liberator of Israel, triggering seriously every Christian in the whole world that 
you know, by the time this comes up, and this is another aspect of this. If this happens, if we go through a time of great persecution because Christians are going to be killed as well as anti-vaxxers and everybody else that's against the state in this new system, which is very common in, in history, tyrants going to be tyrants and they're going to kill people in millions and millions of people. Communism is killing. Communism requires killing because it requires 100% uh, 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 obedience to the system. And by nature, people won't be hundred uh, percent obedient to the system. So you have to re-educate them or kill them. So there's going to be a lot of killing. Christians are going to be a part of that because the nature of the system is going to be woke and nonsense and anti-biblical. So tr trust me, there's going to be a massive shift in doctrine in the Christian world, because right now, everything that we believe about Bible prophecy is essentially based on the fact of American excep exceptionalism, that nothing bad will ever come to us. And we've got this concept of the rapture that, hey, we're not even going to experience any bad stuff at all. So there will be a massive reorientation of doctrine during that time, and it will be just like in the Reformation. It will be just like when, in, during the Reformation, when they noticed that, the, the, hey, we're getting killed to death, tortured to death, like in the Iron Maiden and the, the rack and all this crazy stuff by this false religion who is wrong about the gospel, and they killed them for a thousand years. Surely that must be the Antichrist system. They, they couldn't, smart people, geniuses, John Calvin and all these people could not possibly perceive that that was not the end times because of newspaper eisegesis. It's just where we're going to go. And man, we're going to go there so hardcore with this, it's unstoppable. And they're going, this is my point, that the, the, the demons and the Satan are going to encourage that every single step of the way. And that's why I was talking about Russia might play a role of this if it develops into anything. Because, and you've seen my 10 part, whatever it is, five hours on the Gog Magog study, and Russia is not Gog. It's just not. It's a stupid idea that was developed, not by Hal Lindsey, by somebody who's right before Hal Lindsey, but uh, that was to play in the role of the Cold War because he was doing newspaper eisegesis. So they came up with a nonsense way to make Russia, the current enemy at that time, a part of biblical prophecy because, of course, the rapture was going to happen in 1988 and all that stuff. So, so Russia, but not, nevertheless, the people still believe that Gog is Russia. I mean, your average, uh, 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 I just uh, heard my pastor say it the other day. I was like, eh, you know, I mean, what are you going to do? So it's just what's going to happen. So if Russia is any way involved in it, it's going to be sort of uh, lumped into the whole thing. But there will be a reorientation of the rapture doctrine, doctrine for sure. And I think that's a critical part of the Antichrist deception. He has to do something with the rapture uh, to discredit it to a certain extent uh, or to make it seem like it's not going to happen. Something has to happen doctrinally about the rapture. But one thing is for sure, the, the basis for the American concept of the rapture, which we exported, or actually it was England concept that we exported here, uh, but we've now exported to the rest of the world, is essentially based on the way that things had been going so far, which is that we just assumed that there would never be any persecution for us here in the West. And once we experience that persecution, that concept will be shattered. So there will be a, something will come in to fill that gap, doc, doctrinally speaking, and will, as a, a, a church, uh, come up with some other nonsense idea. I hope that it's a good idea. I know that there will always be a, a number of people that will hold to good ideas, uh, but the vast majority just won't. One final thing in my notes that sort of relates to that is this concept of pharmakia in the Bible. So many of you know that uh, sorcery the, is sometimes translated as sorcery. It comes from the Greek word pharmakia, which is where we get the term pharmacy. That word, I think I saw it, maybe it was Bible Gateway or Bible, uh, one of the Bible sites posted that it was the most searched term, you know, all year or whatever for their site. 
And uh, I've been hearing that a lot lately that, you know, it relates to coronavirus or whatever, often quoting Revelation 18, 23, all nations were deceived by your sorcery, your pharmakia. And we can make the connection. We'll say, well, all nations were deceived by the coronavirus and they went into the new world order. You, you see what's happening there. It's basically saying that that Revelation 18 was talking about the coronavirus in order to get them into the new world order, which is my premise here is like the new world order must be seen by everyone as evil end of times, what the Bible was talking about. But I want to, I want to talk about that. Pharmakia does mean it can mean sorcery with regard to taking drugs, which is probably where etymologically it came from, because that was sort of the first uh, way to contact demons. Like the shamans in ancient times used to take drugs. Uh, you know, we know these drugs today, ayahuasca and these kinds of drugs, but there's all kinds of drugs that you've taken them in certain amount of dosages that you'll go to talk to demons and everybody, the shamans to their credit, if you read back in those early sources and stuff, they knew that they were demons. They knew that they were evil tricksters and you had to be careful. And that's the reason why only one guy in the tribe would be the shaman because he would usually have a short life and kill himself uh, early or whatever. It was dangerous to be a shaman. But what he would do is he would take one for the team, go and talk to the demons, say, hey, uh, how do we uh, solve this uh, fever that this person has? And the demon would say, oh, well, you go crush this uh, thing and you do this other thing, but in exchange, we need this or whatever, or sacrifices or whatever, you know, doing demon stuff. But so they knew that they were evil. They knew that they were uh, uh, trickster liars, but they also knew that they were brilliant and knew about the, uh, the life stuff and plants and stuff. So it was a trade-off. So pharmakia, but my point is that, that that's sorcery. The, the, the summoning of and talking with demons uh, is sorcery. And we see other ways in which sorcery happens, in which you could do a, uh, you know, whatever. You don't have to have a pentagram or anything. You just need to have your free will to say that you want to, which is what all these things, these trickery little occult things are just, they're for the occult practitioner to think that they're doing something cool and they know some secret knowledge and they read the right words or whatever. But none of that is necessary. All you have to do is have the free will to say, hey, I want to talk to demons and then you could do that. So my point is that sorcery, pharmakia also just means sorcery. Okay. Yes, it can have its root. It's rooted in the pharmakia aspect of it. And you can do a Bible study on the word pharmakia and see different ways in which people do that, but it's not always through, uh, uh, through drugs. But my overarching point here is that in Revelation 18, 23, it's talking about the sorcery of what? It's talking about mystery Babylon. It's talking about an occasion in which the world worships the Antichrist um, and they go and they give him gold, silver, and precious stones at the temple in Jerusalem. They're talking about the world deceived by his sorcery, their sorcery, the false prophet calling fire down from heaven in order to make people love the Antichrist who re apparently resurrects from the dead and, and all this stuff that's done there. To, to say that coronavirus has anything to do with that situation in Revelation 18, 23 is to greatly give coronavirus way too much credit. This is talking about people being intoxicated to worship the Antichrist. That's what it says in that section in Revelation 17 and 18, that the woman makes the world drunk. The whole world is made drunk by the fierceness of her fornication. 
That is that she worships the Antichrist, which I think is she's a picture of uh, apostate Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that embraces the Antichrist in the end times. She worships him so much as it says that she's found her husband and king and the whole world is drawn into that. What's happening in Jerusalem? They think that they found the Messiah. They're worshiping the Messiah and he's got this stuff and you know he's able to do all these things and it's something crazy is happening in Jerusalem and they they the world is made drunk by her, the fierceness of her fornication. And that fornication is justified in her eyes because she's seen this stuff happen and false prophets calling fire down from heaven. She's seen a man rise from the dead. The, the sorcery that's happening there isn't coronavirus. It's just not. Now, is will viruses and pestilence play a role in the end times? Absolutely. Okay, I was going to go into some of the things I found in my apostasy situation, but I'm already at close to an hour here, so I'll go ahead and wrap it up. Go to the website, BibleProphecyTalk.com. I should have USB drives ready for the Bible Prophecy Archive. Uh, you know, it's still kind of hard to download that link. It's such a big file. So I will be making USB drives available. I'll ship them to you for free or at least at cost. I'm not exactly sure how it will happen. They should be arriving here shortly. So that's in the works and stay tuned for more details on that gospel project. And I will talk to you next time. Bye.